Good morning. Glad you're here today. Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ron Snyder wrote a book called The Scandal of Evangelical Conscience. But the subtitle really tells you what it's about. Why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? We've all heard the statistics, and he shared some as well, that are quite disturbing, that spouse abuse, divorce, racism, uh, premarital sex, materialism, addictions to pornography are almost as common among those who claim to be Christians as the rest of the world. One author said this, every day the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. But look at the screen at Romans 12 too. Here's what the Bible says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But it's not just weak Christians or nominal Christians who are struggling, failing to live distinctive lives. Too often we read the headlines where church leaders are, are found guilty of molesting children or, or having an affair or, or struggling with, with drug abuse or alcoholism or other moral failures. So when Christians have such little distinctiveness, it's no wonder we seem to not be making much impact on the world. So today's message is called Right Identity, Right Thinking. Because before we even get into behavior, we've got to have the right thinking. And right thinking comes from what we've been talking about, the right identity. And the right identity comes from God. I hope you've kind of connected the dots as we've been studying through this. Every way God defines us involves him. We are his masterpiece. He's adopted us. He loves us. We are in Christ. So even our identity goes back to him. We're taking this study from the, the last part of Ephesians. Now, if, you're, if you are familiar with the way Paul writes many of his epistles, there's a first section and a second section. Not always half, but Ephesians is in half. And the first part is usually uh, doctrine. And the second part is behavior. The first part is kind of what to believe. And the second part is how to behave. And Ephesians is that way. The first part of Ephesians tells us, remember who you are. And then the second part tells us how to behave. Even though you were dead in your sins, God made us alive in Christ. We are saved by grace, not our works. And the second part begins chapter 4, verse 1, and we're admonished here to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What does that mean? In the futility of their minds. How does the world think? How are we supposed to think? Having a Christian worldview is extremely important. Sider's book does share who are living distinctive lives. He identifies those as the 9% of those who call themselves Christians who have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. And he identifies that like this, that God is all-knowing, all-powerful creator. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Satan is real. Salvation is a free gift. Every Christian has a personal responsibility to evangelize. And the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches. And he writes this. The good news is that the small percentage of people with a biblical worldview demonstrate genuinely different behavior. 
when they're thinking right, they're acting right. That's what he's saying here. He says they're nine times more likely than others to avoid adult-only material on the Internet. Three times more likely than other adults not to use tobacco products. Twice as likely to volunteer their time to serve those in need. Five times less likely as adults than the general adults to say that their career comes first. And they have lower rates of domestic abuse than others. But that book was written years ago. I couldn't help but think, I wonder where the statistics are now. Are they better? Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? But the point is obvious. There's a direct correlation between what people believe and how people behave. All of us, no matter our age, this is a truth in life. No wonder David said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And think about the verses that we know that talk about the mind. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The mind of a sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You, God, will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. So our text is going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, primarily verses 17 through 24. So I want you to open your Bibles there. The verses are going to be on the screen, but I want you to kind of see how it lays out in your Bible as well. And I want us to walk through these passages and really contrast the world's way of thinking and, and God's way of thinking, the way we should be thinking. So let's kind of notice these behaviors, these thinkings, and, and the results of this as well. So verses 17 through 19, kind of the first section Paul describes the thinking of the world, and I want to key in on a few phrases, and they're underlined on the screen. Now, this I say, verse 17, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So just note that, the futility of the minds. That describes the mindset of the world, futile thinking. Futile thinking is anything that does not include God in the core. That's futile thinking. Without God, think about it. There's no moral law. There's no ultimate meaning to life. There's no future. When people reject or make God marginal in their life, then their thinking becomes futile, meaningless. Imagine a tightrope walker. They're in a circus about to do his act in front of a, a full crowd. And right before he gets on the rope, a stagehand comes up and said, we failed to secure the rope. Knowing that if he gets on that, he is doomed to fall. And it's going to be terrible. Yet our youth are taught. You don't, we don't know where you came from. We don't know where you're going. But you've got to make the right choices. How can we expect them to make the right choices when we don't know where we came from? We don't know where we're going. With no sense of identity, no sense of destiny, no sense of responsibility, they logically conclude that there is no meaning to life other than what I want to give it. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. And why would we be surprised that they would make those choices? Or give way to despair and think life is meaningless. Notice the next phrase that describes the world's mind, darkened understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. It's quite a contrast here. But when people reject Jesus, they walk in darkness. And when you walk in darkness, you can't see what's right and wrong anymore. They're blind to the truth. 
They're confused. They're darkened in their understanding. Listen to Romans 1, verse 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Darkened. Futile in their thinking. Same kind of wording. Because it happens. It's true. Without God, there's just a loss of common sense. Political correctness seems to be growing more and more. And sometimes we hear people say things and we think, how can they think that's even worth saying? Are they listening to themselves? I think it's really just man's effort to establish a fair world on its own terms. But sometimes it just gets silly. Sometimes we just shake our heads going, I can't believe that just happened. Do you remember when the president of Harvard was forced to resign? This is back in 2006. Because he dared suggest that men and women had an innate, different biological makeup that may suggest why women are not represented as much in the sciences. He had to resign in large part because of that statement. But I wonder if he said something about women being better in their intuition, if anybody had even blinked an eye at that. But it's not politically incorrect in so many other ways. When the new sleep medicine, Lunesta, you've heard of that one? When it came out years ago, Paul Harvey was still alive, and he commented this. He talked about the label warning that was required to list all the, the side effects and they were, they were required to list may cause drowsiness. <laughs> You've read the warning labels before, and you're thinking, why is this on here? Really? Somebody decided that had to be there. The person must be informed. But how many states in our wonderful nation will allow a, a woman seeking an abortion and will not want them to be informed about the consequences. What's at stake with that behavior, both physically and even emotionally? We've lost common sense. Our understanding is darkened. Listen to how the message paraphrases these passages. I insist there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. I think it's true, isn't it? Paul goes on to say, the way people think impacts the condition of the heart. Look at verse 18. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. If you isolate a person from food and water, they become dehydrated, they become lethargic, they eventually die. If a person is separated from God, the source of life, they become weak. The Bible describes us being dead in trespasses and sins. But verse 18 says, we're separated from God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of the heart. Remember when Pharaoh had a hard heart toward God and refused to let the people of God free? His heart became so hard, it didn't matter. All those horrible plagues, he just dug his heels in. His heart became even harder. And we read through one, two, three, all the way up, even the tenth plague the horrible death of the firstborn, even his own son, that softened his heart. But you remember the story only temporarily. People who are alienated from God will develop a heart that is so hardened, they just scoff at God, at his people, at his word, at anything that they say. 
They can participate in the grossest sins without a twinge of conscience. No shame, no guilt. They get arrested for drunk driving, embarrass their family, nearly lose their job. The people who love them come to them, and they do it again. They can leave their mate, leave their children at home, chasing after some fantasy, and never look back. Some are so incredibly hardened. They lie, steal, cheat. It becomes normal. Jeremiah 6, 15 says, Why were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. That's what happens when you become hard-hearted. Dr. Albert Einstein, in a lecture given in 1948, think about the timing of that, just after the war, he talked about man's sin problem. He said, the true problem lies in the hearts and thoughts of men. It's not a physical, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. What a powerful statement. The world's mindset becomes futile. The heart becomes hard, and their behavior becomes increasingly wicked, and they think nothing of it. Verse 19 says they become callous. They're giving themselves up to sensuality. There's no God to whom they find themselves accountable, so anything goes. So to them, life is not found in pleasing God. Life is found in pleasing yourself. You do what you want to do. Paul described this as being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The NIV translates that with a continual lust for more. A continual lust. That's where it leads. But as pleasurable as self-indulgence may be, it never permanently satisfies. You enjoy it at the time, sure. But then you want more and you want a different. One author says if salt water creates more thirst, sin creates that continual lust for more. Now, we may not see it in ourselves, but we can see it in other people. And sometimes we just shake our head. Did you ever see one of those Dateline episodes where they showed the sting, where they were catching the, the men who knew they were going to have sex with the minor? They were told that, and they went anyway. And so they set up the cameras, had the law enforcement there, had the, had the address, and these men. One, there was one episode that had 50 men in the course of just a matter of hours that showed up. There was one guy who drove up, saw the sheriff's car right in the front at that particular time. They were taking a break, and he went around and entered on the backside. So consumed with that continual lust for more, even that warning, even that threat didn't keep him from doing that. That's where it leads. But then verses 20 through 24 Paul contrasts that. Very dark picture, but he contrasts in the thinking of a Christian. Again, it's on the screen. Notice these phrases. We kind of go quickly. I've underlined a few of them. But listen to this. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you look at your outline, you see a little box there. I want to spend the rest of our lesson kind of contrasting the world's way of thinking 
and a biblical mindset or what it means to truly have a Christ-like mind. Because the world's thinking is futile. The Christian's thinking is purposeful. We were taught the truth in Jesus. That's the way he describes it here. Jesus' miraculous life verifies to us there is a God in heaven who created us, who made us in his image. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. His vicarious death provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. That's why he came. He gave us a way to escape the wrath of our sins, the consequences of our sins. He said, my blood is shed for the remission of sins. And Jesus' bodily resurrection promises us the hope of eternal life. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. So the world's understanding then is darkened. And the Christian's understanding is enlightened. Notice the phrase there, renewed in the spirit of your minds. We have this new attitude about our identity. We are in Christ. We are made in the image of God. We are enlightened about that. Jesus had shown the light. We're called out of this darkness. And we see it. We have an inheritance in heaven. We know where we're going. We know our purpose is to please him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about a wisdom that comes from heaven. And I believe God grants the mature believer a common sense. An ability just to be able to see what's right and wrong in the moment that's worth more than any PhD. You don't need a government study to tell you that smoking's not good for you, for example. For years and years, that was done commonplace. Even the ones who did it knew it wasn't good for them. But there are those who all alone didn't have to be told that. You don't need a warning label to say use as directed. You know that kind of laugh at some of those warnings. You don't need a restaurant to tell you how many calories are in that blooming onion or that decadent dessert. You may order it anyway and enjoy every bite, but you know there may not be a book, chapter, and verse for every temptation, every decision. And even if there is a book, chapter, and verse, you may not have that moment of recall to be able to call it out But you know, as Paul describes here, the truth that is in Jesus. You have what Paul says, a renewed spirit of the mind. You're following him. You are in Christ. You have this truth. You have this light. You're no longer darkened. And you make decisions every day, and your choices reflect that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, also notice the contrast between the world's heart and that of the believer. The world is separated from God. That's the way Paul describes it. And the Christian knows Jesus as a friend. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I've called you friends. Why does he call us a friend? For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He calls us a friend. (coughs) Dr. Timothy Jennings has a book called The God shaped brain. You may have heard of the book. You may have heard of him as well. But he had said a line the other day in a podcast I was listening to. He says, we are more afraid of the God who loves us. We are more afraid of the God who loves us than the sin that's trying to destroy us. 
We are more afraid of the God who loves us than the sin that's trying to destroy us. The world has a hard heart, but Christians have a teachable heart, a soft heart. Verse 23, for you've heard about him, you were taught in him to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You know, as a young man, Saul of Tarsus was so arrogant, so hardened, so bitter that he arrested and even tortured to death some Christians. But Jesus struck him down with a bright light. Jesus showed him who he was and what it meant to follow him. He taught him the truth. And then years later, as a mature Christian, he would write to the church at Corinth in chapter 2, verse 4 of the second book. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's a changed man. That goes from a hard heart to a soft heart. It's a teachable spirit because he came to know Christ. And no matter how hard your heart may be, no matter how, how stubborn you are or how much you've sinned, the Lord can break your pride. The Lord can bend your knee. The Lord can just shatter your cynicism. The Lord can soften your heart. David prayed in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then even the behavior, we'll talk about this even more in the coming weeks, but the behavior is different. Look at verse 22. Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Your instincts will deceive you. So they need to be restrained or they'll get you into trouble. See, instincts can easily be manipulated. Advertisers know this, and they're experts at it. And they can get you to make an impulsive decision that goes against everything wise and sound that you know. And they can push your button, and they do it all the time. Ask any pilot, is it safe to fly by your instinct? Because when the weather is good, when it's daylight, your instincts match all your instrument panel. But if you're in a storm, if it's night, your instruments will tell you one thing, but your inner ear will tell you something else, like you're going down when you're going up or going up when you're going down. That's what the experts concluded, that John F. Kennedy Jr. died, pilot error, because he didn't, he trusted his instincts, and he crashed. They will tell you, don't trust your instincts. When you can't see, you read your instrument panel. While the world lives to indulge in sinful desires, sensual desires, the Christian disciplines the desires. And he gives the reason there because they are so deceitful. Christians have been taught that sensual desires mislead you. They promise you satisfaction, but they deliver guilt and heartache and alienation and even a craving for more. So he put off the old self, he says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then notice the world indulges in every kind of impurity, but the Christian seeks God, true righteousness. True righteousness is just living rightly. It's making the right choices. It's not just restraining deceitful desires. It's fulfilling those good things too. 
It's chasing after what's good and right and pure. It's being generous. It's being kind. It's being compassionate. It's being joyful. And you seek after those. It's not just saying no to what's evil and wrong. It's wanting what's good and wholesome and pure. While the world is experiencing that continual lust for more, if you've been taught about Jesus, if you are in Christ, you're wanting to be filled with him that relationship with him. Twice in this text, it references what we know from Jesus. It says that what, the way you've learned Christ and the truth that is in Jesus, which kind of begs the question, what have you learned from Jesus? What do you know of him? Remember his words in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember how it ends? For they shall be filled. That's the promise. Years ago, Chris Burke hit a, a dramatic game-winning home run in the 18th inning that sent the uh, Houston Astros, Astros into the National League playoffs. Well, that just made him an instant hero in Houston. In fact, every Houston uh, Astro fan. The next day, a teammate asked him, teammate not a Christian, asked him, what did you do to celebrate after the game last night? Chris said, well, my wife and I went out to a restaurant, found a quiet corner, and we just celebrated and had a wonderful time together because the season had been a lot of uh, emotional ups and downs, and his wife had stuck with him, and so he wanted to be with her and to love with her. His teammate said, you know, it's a shame you're a Christian kind of implying that if you weren't a Christian, then you could have really had a good time. Chris sharing the story said, you know, I so much wanted to say, no, it's a shame you're not because you're the one truly missing out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. I'm going to close with this. I want to make one more contrast. I'm going to share two articles. One that I think illustrates what it means to think like the world and where it leads and the other, what it means to think like Jesus. The first is from Steve Turner. He's an English journalist. He wrote a satirical essay kind of describing the world's thinking. It's entitled Creed. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone according to your definition of hurt. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe in adultery is fun. We believe sodomy is okay. And we believe taboos are taboo. We believe everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. We believe there is something to horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. We believe Jesus was a good man just like Muhammad, Buddha, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think basically his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end and the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in total disarmament. And there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and our enemies would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good 
And it's only behavior that lets him down. That it is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. And the conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find truth that is right for him. And, re- and reality will adapt accordingly. We believe there is no absolute truth except the truth that there's no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. It chanced to be the father of all flesh. Disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. That is the futility of the world's thinking. The second article is from John Piper. He used a real-life example to demonstrate how belief in Jesus transforms behavior, even how you react in certain situations. He points to a time when believers in Muhammad learned that their prophet had been ridiculed by uh, uh, cartoonists as being violent, and they responded with angry protest and violence. Their belief was their prophet had been insulted, and he must be respected. And so any humiliation must not be uh, uh, tolerated, but in fact it should be retaliated in kind. But Jesus Christ's glory came in his humiliation. Did you notice how many songs Eric chose for us to sing today that talked about that? The humiliation of the cross. He was beaten, spat upon, mocked, flogged, crucified, died naked on the cross in humiliation, complete humiliation for you. Because the crucifixion, the cross, is our source of redemption and hope. So when Jesus is ridiculed today... Look, we've already been there. He's already been there. He's already been shamed. So are we upset about it? Yes, it bothers us. It bothers us when the artist displays a crucifix in a bottle of urine or in movies like The Last Temptation of Christ where Jesus is portrayed as a lustful sinner when entertainers even today will call the Bible an ignorant book and they'll mock those who dare name the name of Jesus. Hurts. There's no violence. The Bible says we are to humble ourselves as Jesus did. We learn the Jesus way. What did Jesus teach you about suffering, about shame? We are like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. John Piper wrote this. A religion with no insulted Savior will not endure insults to win scoffers. It means that Islam is destined to bear the impossible load of upholding the honor of one who did not die and rise again. It means that Jesus Christ is still the only hope of peace with God and peace with man. I want to challenge you to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to have the right thinking, to learn the truth of Jesus and Switch, change your worldview. Think like Jesus wants you to think. He will soften your heart. He will transform your behavior. He will give you a life of forgiveness and hope. God gave us a mind to think, to make choices.
And what God wants most of all is for you to choose him. He chose you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God went first. And what he wants to know, will you use the mind he gave you to make the decision to follow him? This morning, if you're ready to confess your faith, if you're ready to obey his command to be baptized, we want to help you with that. Or if we can help you in any way with your relationship that you can have this new way of thinking, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?